You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And Neil, you are doing something, well, I mean, you're always doing things that I find absolutely fascinating. Maybe that's just the nature of you. But you have a debate coming up with the IBM debater, that thing that looks like maybe it's a little bit the the uh, the block from 2001 a space odyssey the the ibm project debater yes ibm project debater first of all how did that happen did they call you up and they were like neil you are humanity's best hope we need you to debate this this box yeah yeah that's right i'm the uh, the equivalent of Gary Kasparov or Lisa Doll, but it, but in the debating world, yeah, that's that's I think that's right. You're the intellectual Sarah Connors. <laughs> um, actually, I found out about Project Debater. I don't. I think it had been around for a little while before that, but there was a talk about it. I think at last year's Europe's Expo. So, just for context, it's a. It's been around for a bit. Yeah, it's and it's a debating machine. It. It participates in <laughs> debates. I don't know what the debates. Yes, but I think that there's a name for these type of debates. It's and the interesting thing is this one's going to be held at the Cambridge Union, which I think is the original place where you hold these debates. So there are, I think, parliamentary style debates where you have a motion and you speak for the motion and speak against the motion. And the computer will speak first. And the novel thing, computer will speak. The computer will transmit. The computer will generate sound. The computer will transmit sound waves first. Um, And those sound waves will be composed of... English? I think the interesting thing here, there's a whist English, I think. Yes, I hope. Otherwise, I'm going to be in trouble. If it outwits me by... Speaking in a language I don't understand. Damn it. So, but the idea is that it's going to assimilate arguments from people who have submitted them before the debate and then create, I guess the aim is a coherent argument from that. But I'm both debating against it and with it. So it's going to have, it's going to have a bit of a split personality. At one point, it's going to debate the for the motion and then another point it's going to debate against the motion and the gist of the motion is something like this house believes that ai will do more harm than good house being the parliamentary debating chamber and i'm for the government so so i'm in favor of harm i mean sorry i'm in favor of saying that ai will do more harm than good which is not necessarily my opinion actually it's i could try and debate either side that's one of the i think if you're a professional debater in inverted commas whatever that means or you do this sort of debating society Formally, stuff yeah formal debater yeah debating competitions you have and, and there are rules for them then you don't necessarily believe in what you're debating you just try and argue the point that's your side so okay the ibm project debater has like a physical form it's this sort of big black box with kind of like a little screen on it and then it also makes noise in whatever language, in whatever human language, the is the language of the person that it's debating against. But what is the what is the project specifically? So like, so in this instance, it's taking arguments that have been submitted to it before, and then it is 
doing topic modeling on the best argument? Or is it just, is is the natural language processing the part that's artificial intelligence? What, what, what about this is a project in artificial intelligence? I think so. The, the ones I've seen before, it actually listens to arguments and constructs responses. I think it's not going to do that this time. I think it's more about, can it combine different arguments people give it into a single narrative but I, and i'm not the expert on it so it's noam slonin who is i think leading the project debater and yeah i mean i'm going to be intrigued to see i mean it's not going to be the case that like well there's so there's going to be project debater will speak and then project debater will speak again so it's going to argue against itself i think this is the format and then i think i speak and then one of my collaborators on data trusts or my main collaborator on data trust sylvie delacroix will speak what i like is i'm speaking against ai and i'm i'm the sort of ai person and she's speaking for ai and she's sort of philosophy and law background so it's sort of reversing roles a bit which is fun and then i think two in inverted commas professional debaters but you know skilled debaters real debaters will speak and they're from the cambridge union so they or they are they're either from the Cambridge Union or maybe they're just known people who do this for a, a living or not a living but as a hobby or you know they take it seriously not that I'm gonna yes you know I'll it's take their it thing seriously too yeah it's their thing yeah it's their thing. just going on a romp yeah yeah and yeah so you can actually see videos of what Cambridge Union debates look like it's sort of this old chamber with people lined up and occasionally people can ask questions from the floor. And uh, yeah, it should be fun. Okay, interesting. I'm fascinated to see how this goes. And most of the most of these debates are posted online afterwards. Like we could go and see them. Yeah, I don't know that this one will be, but it's certainly I've, in order to prepare myself mentally, because I've never been inside the union chamber and I've never debated a computer before. And I have done debates in this style. I did one in Sheffield where... I was speaking, I think, in favor of AI some years ago. And Shakir Mohammed set one up at Dali in South Africa last year, which was very interesting. It was he set it up around companies and software and making software available and should they be forced to make software available. And ironically, well, I spoke against the motion in that case because I was at the time at a company, but also, but it, which is odd for me because I was quite early in making software available. And, but that was sort of interesting too. One thing that was interesting about that is some, not everyone understands that if you're arguing a motion, you're trying to make the points. You don't necessarily. You don't believe. Yeah. Oh. And, and that's, that's kind of interesting, you know, because it, 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 I really like the fact that Shakir was setting it up. But it sort of almost has to be understood that you're trying to explore the argument through this mechanism and it just, you know, people are playing roles in what they're presenting. And of course, that's certainly understood in the professional debating society. And I do think that's a useful exercise as well to try and make an argument that you don't necessarily believe in. And so you sort of see it from someone else's perspective. So that, that, that maybe it's something we should do more of, but we should perhaps, first of all, all understand that when we're doing it, people are, it's an intellectual exercise. It's not about necessarily what we believe. 
So I, I'd love to talk to you more about Project Debater in general. I have been fascinated by this thing because I think that it raises quietly a lot of the questions that are sort of floating around around artificial intelligence a lot of the time. Like, what does it mean to be artificially intelligent? But I think one of the easier ones to grasp is what does it mean to be a physical embodiment of an artificial intelligence. And IBM has chosen to put this program or tool in a box and then have it respond and, and it respond in natural language to whoever its, its competition is. And that box looks a lot like the box from 2001 A Space Odyssey. The like the housing, the casing. The for monolith. It. Yes, the monolith. Yeah. The thing that appeared and then all the chimps started hitting each other with bones. Yep. Yep, yep exactly. Yes. Yeah. That thing. So you're worried that's gonna happen. Actually now you say that, that might happen in the game. <laughs> I think that we're just yeah, okay. I think that do you am I am I being hyper vigilant or are we not taking into full are we the field, not taking into account the full context of the narratives that we are kind of silently flagging when we're thinking about the way that humans can interact with these tools in public spaces or how we sort of like bring the public into the conversation about these tools who who may be seeing those contexts more readily than the rest of the field is. I don't know. Do we need to think about this or am I just reading in too much? It's interesting. You mean, how should they... How should they present Project Debater, you mean? Yeah. How do if it if if Project Debater, if the important thing about Project Debater is that it is a highly impressive tool that is software and is the natural language processing, the speech processing part of that tool, then it should just be like a speaker on a podium that also has a microphone, right? Those are the tools that you would need to interact with it. But how do we think about the presentation of these systems, of these tools, and the other contexts or storylines or narratives that we might be bringing in to the conversation without really thinking about it, especially when we're thinking about intelligence? Yeah, please. So I got a bit confused <laughs> when you said speaker on a podium with a microphone, because then I was like an electronic speaker or like a... Yeah, like an amplifier it, and a microphone. Oh, it, sh it should be like an amplifier, right, yeah. Because so, so I was like, so, so you have a graduate so student got, and a microphone, see, which is quite interesting in itself. Because if you put a speaker in right, front of a microphone, right, you're kind right, of using exactly. the air to transmit right. sound for a bit in a slightly unnecessary way. <laughs> yes, uh -huh. I'm just sort of picturing that. Okay, I've got it. So there's a speaker, and in front of the microphone, in front of the speaker, there's a microphone. Right. Okay, and is is the speaker like cupping the microphone in some sort of <laughs> Noel Gallagher, well, so, sorry, so Liam Gallagher. I mean, the order of operations point. is, if the impressive part about this about this program is that it can interact with a human through natural language processing, or I'm sorry, through through natural language through human natural language, then you need a microphone to receive the language of the person. That's hooked into whatever computer is running the system, and then the computer needs to be able to have a way to make noise out to the human that's in this loop. So a speaker in some way attached to that thing, and those are the three parts that you would need. Yeah, I mean, we could just plug it directly right. into the PA system. Right. Is yes, what I'm exactly. Thinking. So, but then it would be like a disembodied voice. So we would just sit there, and there wouldn't be anything to focus on. Is, is I guess so that's what the, the role of the speaker is 
uh, it's like it becomes an intelligent stereo. Oh, sorry, uh, intelligent, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. If I'm just, hard, Neil, um... I'm just so glad they didn't make it shaped like a human. That's all. That's <laughs> like. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I mean, in your case, people are starting to think, hey, my boombox has gained intelligence. You know? Right, exactly. People with that. Um, I, I don't know. I guess, I mean, I haven't asked them. And it'll be interesting to see what I think of it live. I think I've sort of seen it. But I guess they, they have to make choices and there's always consequences of choices. I believe it has a female voice, for example. I believe it does and, have a human female voice. Yeah, and so that's a, that's another choice, isn't it? I, you know, there was that sort of funny thing about early speech generation systems were sounded very machine-like, but then weirdly they all faded away and only Stephen Hawking's one sounded like that. So that kind of became Stephen Hawking's voice. And then it becomes Stephen Hawking's voice. Yeah, yeah. which was quite... Interesting. And I read at one point that he he didn't want to update his speech synthesizer because he identified himself with with his, his voice. It, it's sort of difficult, isn't it? As soon as you... So actually, going back to the last time I debated in this space, and I think that debate or the interpretation I had it was... It was something around sentient And AI. you were debating a human in that space. I, last just time in was this, a human. In this questions. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Last time was a human. Same question. Last time was Different a human. But it was something to do... Well, I can't remember what the proposition was, but the proposition only became interesting, I think, or, or my side of the argument only became interesting if you started throwing in some sentience in there. And it got me thinking about sentience and what that means. And in that case, I think that led me down this train of thought, which I still sort of have today, that that the reason in inverted commas sentience, which I know is what everyone's so freaking out about. And I, I was arguing, so that was it. I think I was being having to argue positively about AI. And I didn't want to make, if I my memory is correct, I didn't want to just sort of do what I basically think, that this is useful technology, it's going to have great effects on health and because it's sort of a little bit bit boring. I mean, it's what I believe and what I work towards, but it it's not very interesting for a debate. So I interpreted it as meaning sort of sentient AI, which is something that I hadn't really thought about. It's not something I was pursuing, but it was where the public is. And so I started trying to think about what that means or what sentience means. And in that case, and this I think relates to your point here, it's, I argued in favor of sentient AI because I was saying, look, the non-sentient stuff we have at the moment is causing very, very serious problems, meaning that it operates in ways that are below our sort of cognitive radar. You know, we, we can't understand how it's making its drawing its conclusions. It appears to do somewhat intelligent things, but it doesn't represent itself in a way that our brain is used to dealing with. So you get this sort of computer says no effect. So I think the counter argument that you end up wanting to make these things look more human is that otherwise we can't think about them properly. But then it's a weird thing because it isn't human, you know. So you end up wanting to emulate something that looks like a human just so that it can weigh the information it's projecting in a way that a human can correctly digest. So you know, how does a doctor weigh information that's coming in from lots and lots of data? It's quite hard. It takes experience. 
but you know they they do know how to converse with other doctors and sort of weigh the opinion of another doctor and you know one way of presenting the data would be and this was this is the constructive argument that I made that why you want that I don't know if that's exactly sentience but it's sort of emulating something that looks like sentience right and I think what you're sort of saying is heading towards that once you've injected it into something that is a purely human activity because basically i don't know how it's representing things internally but let's say let's pretend it's using a knowledge graph of some kind which is like what a lot of intelligent systems do you know if it was really if the two computers were really debating with each other instead of vocalizing their debates they could just you know submit their knowledge graphs to the same file system (laughs) And then ideally combine them in some way and find a great truth. That would be brilliant, actually. I hope that's what happens at the beginning of the debate, that the computers just do that and don't say anything. And they say, we have resolved it. (laughs) (laughs) The debate is over. (laughs) We have determined, you know, which is kind of what computers can do. So the the, the whole exercise of actually vocalising is representing... Well, I don't know it's a knowledge graph, but but some electronic form of knowledge representation isn't how humans do things and trying to map that onto to a way that humans do it. And of course, the danger is they could misrepresent or they could feed into the human psyche in ways that uh, sort of are exploiting our cognitive weaknesses or something like that. And I think then that's an ongoing danger, isn't it? Is that kind of what you're referring to? Or have I misunderstood? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, exploiting those exploiting those weaknesses, right? Like, and how do we... And I think this, this comes down to a lot of the question of like, how, if these technologies are moving forward, how do we understand machine intelligence and how it is different from human intelligence? And exploiting not those not only those cognitive weaknesses but but really they're i think they're narrative weaknesses right because if we i i've been reading and i finished i've been traveling a lot and i finished nick chater's the mind is flat oh how was it yeah it was great it and it it springs to mind because what one of the things it's saying is and this is sort of nick's it's it's Nick's a cognitive scientist. He's at Warwick University and he's actually the person who probably interested me most in cognitive science. Lots of other people have done, but I once co-organized a machine learning summer school at the interface of ML and cognitive science about seven years ago with him. But here he's trying to sort of, I think, come up with, he's trying to fill in some of the gaps in the research, which he documents in the book with what his best guess is at what's going on. And the reason he's saying the mind is flat is he's saying, I think it's no sophisticated internal representations is the notion. So like, for example, you don't have a consistent knowledge graph inside your head. And there's lots of ways of showing that this is the case, that when people try and construct fantasies, he uses an example around Gormenghast Castle, you can show, which is a fictional castle that I haven't read the books about, but it's very detailed. Oh, it's great. Yeah. Speaking as someone whose last name is Gorman, I'm totally into it. <laughs> so apparently people have tried to reconstruct this castle from the books and it's just inconsistent because of the author doesn't have in their head a 
sort of detailed knowledge graph of what which, from which they're generating unless they're like jrr tolkien i was talking about that with someone today but i think by the you know he didn't have that for the hobby he started constructing that and i think almost the books got worse as he started constructing this this world and, and writing about it because it's too much of the detail of the world the narrative's lost but one of the things that nick is says in the book that that sort of resonated with me is is that you can when people instantiate their thoughts through vocalizing them, that that in some, I think the message he's saying is actually changes what they're thinking. So that this this was also in Kevin Regan's book that I spoke about on a previous episode, the, the same theme, and, and indeed Nick cites Kevin. But the theme in both books is, and this makes total sense to me, why would you construct a sort of massive artifice inside your head when the world's out there and it's consistent. Why would you replicate that? Why would you store that and have to do all the transmission between the two? You know, and you think about it, God, God yeah, unnecessary, totally unnecessary. Um, but it does mean interesting things. I think the implication for uh, the way that a human thinks is that we don't have a consistent picture and we rely on constructions in the outside world. And one of those constructions could be the language itself. So, you might sort of think about, so analogies is something, he talks about something I like a great deal. And you might, so so for example, analogy we use in work around data ownership is to say, you know, there are models of data ownership and they're a bit more like the way in which you own a river, not the way in which you own like a book or a house. There are multiple. And as soon as you say that analogy, the, the odd thing is it sort of feels like it makes sense, but you potentially change the way you're thinking about that. And that process is interesting in terms of that that you're if you're debating, you're constructing these things together. And I think what you're referring to, and on the one hand, I think yes, it's it's troublesome. I mean, what does it mean when the computer's doing that? Because it's not participating that in quite the same way. But if it's used as a tool to help the human better understand something, then that's pretty good. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we just need to be aware of these embodiments, right? Like this this interface has a human face or this interface sounds like a human so that you can more easily consume and interpret this information and give it back to whatever interface that is. But understanding that it's not consuming information in that same way and 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 you don't the whole point, I think, around creating these systems is that they are good at things that humans are not good at and humans are good at things that they are that these systems are not good at and we need to yeah so you're trying to right like why do you need a tool a that, that it has human level sentient intelligence like that's that's great there are lots of other humans around why don't you just interface with one of those well only if you're using that tool to access knowledge that those humans sort of don't have i suppose absolutely and actually this is what's quite interesting in this case because what in this case the the machine is trying to do is assimilate different arguments it's been sort of shown from multiple humans and produce a narrative argument from it which i think is actually quite an interesting question whether that's even possible and but if if you can do that in some way then it's potentially, you know, an interesting way of representing diversity of opinion. That's why I find hard about it. Like, what's really interesting is all the different arguments and how they're conflicting. And once you try and construct a consistent narrative out of it, then you're necessarily going to have inconsistencies in your argument, I would feel. But but 
you know, it's a supercomputer, so maybe it won't. Maybe it will defy the laws of logic. You know, I don't know. Right, exactly. But the, like, defying the laws of logic, and this is this is the thing. This is the thing that I think that I think I've been trying to like bring up by asking you about embodiments and all that stuff. I think that the field needs to be very careful about when when doing public interactions or things like this. That. I don't think that the field for the field that humanness is the goal. Intelligence might be the goal, but not but not humanness. And I think that that's the disconnect that we have in a lot of the public conversation around these things. And so when we think about like is the understanding like Gormenghast Castle is amazing and confounding and beautiful because there is no like set thing there it's like the Borges library. It just there's sort of it defies complete understanding but for a machine intelligence there is complete understanding that is that is the thing that makes like a machine intelligence interesting and useful and like able to do these non-human things i think that the like in general i agree because i never i didn't start in the field of artificial intelligence i started in the field of machine learning and then it turned out i was doing ai so i don't really have interest in the way that some people do in creating general intelligences. Got it. Okay, perhaps I'm speaking for the machine machine learning the machine learning section of the... where I sometimes see merit in these arguments around emulating human intelligence is that what you're saying about having complete knowledge is is not quite true because the machine doesn't have the human context. Which actually I find, and, and this is one reason I think machines will always remain different, because I think part of that context is the human condition. And you can observe a lot of data about that. I, I don't know if it can ever be quite the same. Maybe that's a philosophical point. But regardless, until we get anywhere, there will be a need for interaction that the machine doesn't have complete knowledge and it it needs to consult with the human. And I think there's there's natural pressure on the user interface to do something which is going to push the right buttons on the human user and that may end up looking more like a human intelligence just for the purposes of ease of use now i, I definitely agree that there's all sorts of dangers because as because it could be it once you've worked out how to appear like a human-like intelligence you presumably worked out pretty much how to manipulate humans through the same interface and that is something that i find quite worrying i mean machines have already worked out how to manipulate us not consciously but just through large-scale a b testing right and so imagine you know how dangerous that could get as you you start really getting closer to something that appears more human so you know, I think I know where you're coming from in terms of like we shouldn't have that as a name. But at the same time, I sort of feel it, it's there are good reasons to head towards it. And there are very, very bad reasons to head towards it. So, yeah, it's a difficult one. All right. Well, thank you for debating with me about Project Debater, Neil. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, you know, I didn't believe any of those things I was saying. I was just practicing being <laughs> a professional debater. Debate, of course, absolutely. <laughs> well, if you are interested in Project Debater or the books that Neil mentioned, you can find links to all of that information on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. Neil, this is our final episode for this season. 
We are winding down. We have been bringing our audience some specials, and Nurips is coming up. It is hot on our heels, and as is our traditional want, we're going to take the month of December off and come back to you with a fresh new season beginning early next year. So I wanted to take a minute to talk about what we've got coming up at Nurips. And Nurips is especially important for you and me because we are involved with sort of the larger planning community on a variety of, of different levels. Just for full disclosure, I am the press co-chair for Nurips this year, along with Michael Littman, who has been on our show and has been uh, a part of many interesting and fascinating communication projects around artificial intelligence and machine learning, also robotics. And then you and I, Neil, have both been involved in developing the Expo, which is a sort of a newish section of the, newish section of the conference that puts an industrial lens on a lot of the content that we're seeing and is uh, our presentations from the sponsors of the conference. Neil, do you have any other way? Are you still involved in the board of the conference? I am still involved in the board. Yes, I am um, the executive board of the conference, which, you know, votes on certain issues and, and approved, for example, the creation of the Expo, uh, which ran for the first time last year. But I think last year it was... What would you say? It wasn't sort of fully under the radar, but it was a first time and it wasn't... It's a pilot program. It was the very first year. It was year. a pilot. That's Yeah. Yeah. It, it was yeah. a sort of our nascent year. And I personally, well, it's hard to say because when you're involved in putting something together, you know, if you don't enjoy it, you've done a particularly bad job. But <laughs> I find it uh, surprising in good ways, you know, in terms of talks I didn't know I was going to enjoy. I, I I really enjoyed because they were coming from, I think the talks I enjoyed most were perhaps the ones that weren't coming from traditional ML places, but were really interesting in terms of how they were using and deploying machine learning, which is, you know, representative of how, I mean, I don't know what the right term, sort of inverted commas, real people feel about it, not you know, people who happen to be in the machine learning community, but now working in a company, you know, that's not the same as people who have been working in a company have heard about these techniques and have managed to deploy them and use them in a particular way. And well, I, I mean, what are your hopes for the expo? Because you've actually done, I, I would say far more for it this year. Yeah, I have been a part of the... I have. <laughs> Don't say that, Neil. I've been a part of the curatorial team and I am... Super excited to see the content that we've got. I'm particularly excited about the talks panel, the talks track. We have three tracks of content this year, and they're divided by medium. So we've got talks and panels, we've got workshops, and we've got demos. And one of the things that we tried to do this year was to talk about in our call for uh, applications for the expo, we wanted to find content that was specifically focused on how these questions and approach to them are changed by being asked in an industrial context. And also how the geographic location of that industry, like globally, changes those questions. So I'm particularly interested to see presentations from companies that are based in Asia and South America uh, and Africa. I think we have sort of fewer of those than the rest of the content. But those are geographies that I don't get to have a lot of contact with. And so I am super excited to see what positions are brought from there and how a lot of the questions that we hear get asked over and over get changed by being asked by 
researchers in different locations in an industrial context, given the problems that they specifically have. I'm also super psyched. One thing that we tried to do with the, the workshops is to have them based on the workshops that are sort of the model for the conference that come at the end of the conference and have traditionally been a place for academics to share research that hasn't been published yet. In the last couple of years, that that approach has sort of changed a little bit. We've seen the workshops get much bigger. Um, we've seen the sort of the, the course of the information and the style of the information be changed a little bit. But for the workshops at the expo, we asked the people who could produce content, the people who were suggesting content back to the curatorial committee um, to think about tangible, useful skills that could be taught to the attendees, something, a knowledge gift that they could walk away from. So in addition to having this, having this approach where you're going to hear, you're going to learn about something new or something very cutting edge, so cutting edge that it might not even be totally baked yet, that you are going to learn a way to interact with that or how to explore that idea more fully or further. So making it you know, bringing actionable insight to the attendees. So I'm really excited to see how sponsors, and I'm really excited to see how presenters have reacted to that remit, because I think that could be, I think that could change things a little bit. And I'm excited to see how that that might be taken up by the attendees. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. I think, I mean, what's nice about trying to start something new is, yeah, you, you don't know exactly. You, you try and steer it in certain directions, but you can't fully control it. And you don't know exactly how it's going to be. And what I like about what you're saying there is, I think, hopefully with the expo, will, and certainly last year, I thought the demos track really felt like the spirit of the early Europe's demos going like, 10 or 12 years back because you know it was a pilot scheme we put it together later on it wasn't sort of a, a here's a load of professional booths like the sponsors area it was more here's something that companies small companies large companies were passionate about the teams that had designed the thing were there they weren't trying to sell it there was they were presenting an idea and often trying to get feedback and i think one of the fears with the expo that we all had is that it would turn out into some sort of sale thing and Overall, I felt there was very little of that. And I think it's partially because people know that they're presenting to the Europe's audience and they know that that will make them look a bit silly and they want to impress people with the quality of their ideas. So that the, the best way to a sale, I think, is to be shown to be interesting people that are doing cool stuff. And the best way to do that is to be interesting people doing cool stuff and I'm sort of hoping that, and I think that that is the sort of other side of the coin to what you're saying. That's why we're sort of seeing that. And, and I hope we retain that spirit this year. I mean, because, you know, I was laughing as you were talking about the workshops getting larger. I mean, it's the case now that the list of names on the organizing committee for some of the workshops is larger than Europe's workshops were 12 years ago. <laughs> so You'd have to have a, a pre-workshop amongst the organizing committee to uh, understand what the workshop's going to be about. And I think in some cases they do. Like, Yeah, yeah, I yeah. have been on one or two where I'm like, I'm not really sure what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm not on any this year. Yeah, so I think it's great. And I think it. the other purpose to it is to ensure that there's, I think... A, 
well, to try and create more space in the program for people to be more academic at, at the back end of the program. So the notion here is the, the challenge, I think, with Europe's is there's a lot of demand from companies and, and people to attend and, and hear a certain certain strand of ideas or hear about companies or see them present. And then there's the sort of part of the community that is actually much more focused on the academic side and interested in the ideas and may feel that the corporate presence is somewhat corrupting to that. And now whether it is or not, the, the idea here is to front load the program a bit with stuff that's more of interest to the industry people so that the, the sponsors have that sort of day when there's people around looking at that and, you know, have the back end of the program become more focused on the academic side. Well, it also, yeah, absolutely. And with that, as NeurIPS becomes larger and as the number of human beings who are interested in discussing these ideas or being involved with them becomes larger, that's the only way really to allow everyone to be part of this community that comes together. If we have, if we stage things so that if you are interested in the, the more public facing side of this conversation, the industrial side, other issues around that, the first part of the conference is for you. If you are involved in the raw core practitioner side of things and you need somebody's math slides from 2013 and you know that that person's going to be there make sure that you're at the workshops at the end of the conference and if for you know and there are some people in the field who need to be part of the whole thing so get ready for like 1.5 weeks and they're going to be so tired at the end they're going to be and they're so going to be very tired <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be one plane back to wherever if you if you are in the vancouver airport on the last day of the nerves workshop and you see people who are also getting in there the day before the conference started buy them a coffee because they need it <laughs> <laughs> i mean i was thinking i had this little yeah and obviously I, i'm not certainly not speaking on behalf of the executive board i'm just representing the way i think about or why I pushed for for the expo to exist, and it's exactly what you said. But I, but I had, but what we've actually even seen, I think, starting last year, and I suspect it's going on this year. I mean, it happened even before, but it's becoming more public. Is that you're getting satellite meetings that couldn't get into the main conference, sort of springing up in venues nearby. So that's a little bit like I think. I think that's what happened to the Edinburgh Festival where you had the fringe. So there was sort of people in town. So people started putting on side events at little venues around Edinburgh. And in some sense, the fringe itself is now bigger than the festival was. I mean, you know, you just can't find accommodation for love nor money in Edinburgh in, in August. And I think there's part of, well, certainly in my mind, I think that one can see that sort of thing will also potentially happen. I had a fantasy for this year because it's going to be in Vancouver and be, I can't remember when we were last in Vancouver, but when we were last in Vancouver, we all, uh, the whole conference could fit into the Hyatt. It couldn't fit, actually. It was a bit of a nightmare. It was like when when we came out for coffee sessions, it was like the conference was like an amoeba squeezing through a gap, which was the doors and and then sort of feeding on the coffee and then squeezing back through you. There was no sort of, <laughs> there was no sort of movement, but there was a time when the conference fitted comfortably in there. And, you know, I think arguably the larger workshops don't fit in there now. But I did have this slight fantasy that someone, and I don't think anyone has done, someone would would spin up a fringe meeting at the Hyatt Vancouver 
and uh, sort of do a retro neurips. <laughs> just down oh, there. I don't no. think that's happened. Shadow neurips? Uh, yeah, like a shadow. <laughs> that would have been great. <laughs> yeah. Neil, you and me, we can we'll do, do it. it. We'll put it together Let's quickly. Let's start it. I'm sure no one's booked the place. Yeah, we'll put it together. We'll throw it together. <laughs> we'll have workshops where you can't, only one person organizes, and then like there has to be like eight other people, no more than no eight. No more than eight. <laughs> well, the larger one would be on kernels. The largest one will be on kernels, and it will have a hundred people. Excellent. Yeah. Throw it back. It'll be Disneyland. Just freeze it in time. <laughs> Well, I'm very excited to go to the and see the entire conference. There's going to be some amazing talks. I think there are the workshop lineup sounds fantastic. And you and I got a chance to talk about this specifically uh, earlier this season. I think the tutorials are going to be amazing. The tutorials is always something that I don't want to miss because I don't have a PhD in this program. I don't even have a master's of any kind. But it's so the tutorials always present an opportunity to go and listen to people who are experts in an area of thought, but are presenting across the entirety of that area. And and that just always helps me to gain a new lens, a new perspective on these ideas. So so I'm gonna I'm excited to A, increase my foundational knowledge, B, see some cool stuff, C, go to some poster sessions and run around, and D, see all the people that I've made friends with at the NeurIPS conference over these years. And I think that that's, those are the things that I'm really looking forward to to this year at 2019 in Vancouver. Yeah, me too seeing people and i'm looking forward to being eight hours out of time zone so i'm up at four o'clock in the morning with all the other europeans no <laughs> but yeah no i'm you know i think it's 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 gonna be fascinating and uh yes looking forward to and i think as you said the main i think final thing i'm looking forward to is seeing everyone and, and catching up with what they're doing yeah absolutely well, that is it for this episode of Talking Machines and this season of Talking Machines. I hope you'll join us next season and next episode. Until then, I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode.